Escape Pod, 16. August 25th, 2005. Today's story, Seamstress, by Sarah Prinius. Hi, I'm Steve Healy. Welcome to Escape Pod. If anyone listening to this is thinking this podcasting thing sounds like fun, but you're stuck for an idea on what to podcast, I've got an easy one for you. This is something I think there's a demand for, and as far as I know, nobody's doing it yet. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Looking at my podcatcher right now, I've got 26 on my active list. I've got a longish commute that's often about an hour each way, and podcasts are pretty much what have kept me sane this year. The effect of this, of course, is that I've stopped listening to the radio almost entirely. I'm not avoiding it or anything, I just forget to turn it on. There's not a whole lot for me there anymore, and even less now that NPR is starting to podcast their shows. Except, the one thing I miss doing it this way is the news. I'm not a news junkie, but I think there's some value in knowing what's going on. I do watch The Daily Show when I can. I'm convinced Jon Stewart's a bodhisattva. But I don't have time every day, and anyway, I don't think it's healthy to get all your news from a comedy show. I could read the Yahoo headlines or tune into the radio on the hour or something, but it's easy to forget things like that every day, and more and more I'm walking around in a kind of veil of ignorance. So this is where you come in. I think there would be tremendous value in a podcast, daily or a couple times a week or something, that just says, very briefly and matter-of-factly, this is what's going on in the news right now. It could be five minutes a day, maybe ten on a really busy day. You can read it straight. A plane crashed in this country yesterday morning. Or if you wanted to, you can inject some personality. Carl Rove denied all allegations, but revealed himself as Lord Voldemort. Whatever works for you. As long as you were reasonably objective about what stories were important, I think people would go with the flow. The amazing thing is this isn't already being done. Or if it is, I hope somebody will tell me. CNN does do a news recap podcast, but it's hourly, and that's too much. And there are five trillion daily tech podcasts, but there's more in the world than tech news. I have a feeling I'm not the only one with this problem, wanting the news, but being so distracted by other media that we don't go hunting for it. A five-minute news podcast would be perfect for people like us. I'll bet if you did it well, you could gain a very fast audience. Certainly I'd listen, and I'd talk it up, too. So, there's my free idea, if anybody wants it. Meanwhile, I'll talk up today's story. We present Seamstress by Sarah Prineus, another perspective on a fairy tale you probably think you know. Miss Prineus lives in Iowa, where she teaches creative writing and a class on Tokian at the University of Iowa. She's had stories in Realms of Fantasy, Flytrap, Tailbones, and Strange Horizons three times. This story appeared in Realms of Fantasy in August 2003, and it received an honorable mention in the year's Best Fantasy and Horror Anthology. The story is read once again by the illustrious Deborah Green. Deb teaches sewing classes in New York, so I think there's more than a trace of empathy in her reading. Oh, and one last note on this story. When I sent the contract to Miss Prineus, she asked if she could waive payment for the story as her way of supporting Escape Pod. I was floored by the gesture. But I told her that we actually take it as a point of honor that we pay for all of our stories, and that if she didn't want the money herself, she was welcome to name a charity to send her payment to instead. Therefore, at her request, 
Escape Pod has donated $20 on Serapreneus's behalf to Doctors Without Borders. I think that says everything about her that you need to know. So, measure twice and listen once. It's story time. Seamstress by Sarah Perneus I sew a straight seam. Using silken thread and a bone needle, I sew seed pearls onto damask that glow like sapphires in the golden candlelight by which we work. I stitch cobwebs of lace onto petticoats. I sew stays of whalebone into wasp-waisted ball gowns. I've given the fairy godmother a lot of thought. There's plenty of time for thinking when you're hemming a series of virgin-white calico nightdresses with dainty lace at neckline and cuffs. The stitches, the overseer insists, must be no bigger than a grain of sand. As I said, we sew by candlelight. My eyesight is not what it once was. So the godmother. She takes ragged, smudged things and turns them into beautiful princesses. Why, I don't know. A hobby? A calling? An obsession? Is she writing the wrongs done to her when she was young? When I first started here, I had a fantasy. That the godmother would pluck me out of a row of humpbacked, squinting seamstresses and make me, too, a beautiful princess, with a gown sewn by... Well, by the poor wenches too old or too ugly to catch the godmother's eye. But alas, that was not meant to be. Here I sit, have sat, will sit. Time passes, we stitch. As the time has passed, I have grown like the others, humpbacked from bending over my work and crook-fingered from gripping the needle. My tired eyes burn and run with tears at the least provocation. And I have come to understand that drawing the fairy godmother's attention is the last thing I'd ever want to do. I know that there was something before this. Now and again an old seamstress goes blind, or her hands grow too gnarled with arthritis to hold a needle, and she is taken away, never to be seen again, to be replaced later with a fresh young girl who looks around, dazed as she is led to the old one's place, and handed a needle and told to get to work. It's hard to remember, but I think I myself was one of those girls. Once. We had to come from somewhere, didn't we? We sit and stitch in two rows at a long wooden table. A meager candle burns at each seamstress's elbow. And the overseer, who has scaly feet beneath her gown, slithers up and down the room, peering over our shoulders. Her job is to maintain order. No talking is permitted. Anyway, what would we have to talk about? Oceans of silk and satin ebb and flow from one end of the table to the other, washing up here for an embroidery at the hem, there for a fall of ruffles, and back to me for another spangling of seed pearls. Our own dresses are plain shifts of undyed cotton, with an apron over the top. We keep our clothing and ourselves scrupulously clean, because dirty fingers might smudge the cloth or the thread. We stitch. I find myself drifting with a tidal flow of flounces and furbelows. The overseer's breath is cold on my neck. Her forked tongue flickers in my ear. Swifter, smaller stitches, straighter seams. I sew. Smaller stitches, straighter seams. Tears have worn pathways down my face. The door at one end of the long room flies open, and the shoemaker bursts into the room. Candle flames waver in the wind of his arrival. A bloody glass slipper, he shouts. "'waving a scrap of pink paper. "'A shoe made of glass? "'I'm a shoemaker, not a glass blower. 
At his unexpected fierceness, a few heads bob up, surfacing from the placid stitch, stitch, stitch for a brief moment, bleary eyes taking in the scene, hearts beating with the pitter-patter of curiosity and fear. Then the heads jerk back down again. The overseer glides up to him. Certainly some mistake, she hisses. Show me the requisition. Saw. A misspelling. The slippers are supposed to be a fur. Fur slippers. The shoemaker frowns and runs a hand through rumpled graying hair. I don't know. It says there. That's glass. Yes, but it's supposed to be fur. There. See? She points at the pink requisition form. I don't think so. The shoemaker shakes his head, decisive. No. Last time I tried doing it my way, I was sorry after. I'd been sorry, too. He'd gotten fifty lashes for making dogskin slippers instead of the doeskin slippers that had been ordered. He claimed he'd misread the requisition, though I have my doubts about that. The shoemaker is troublesome. I wouldn't put it past him to design subtle mockery into a pair of slippers. But apparently he's learned his lesson. Could you do it with a pattern? The overseer asks. The shoemaker shrugs, suddenly resigned. The pink requisition form flutters to the floor. I'll work out something. As he turns to leave, he catches me looking at him. I don't dare offer up a smile, but he must understand the suggestion in my eyes, for he gives me the slightest nod in return. After he goes, the seamstresses are unsettled. Whispers are heard. The overseer's watchful gaze darts here, there, trying to catch us out. The seamstress next to me leans over and speaks without taking her eyes from her work. Do you think the shoemaker is good-looking? I sit up straighter, astonished at her daring. Sneaking a quick glance sideways, I see that she is young, with chestnut hair and fading blue eyes that once might have been merry. At the far end of the room, the overseer's head comes up, alert, her mouth opening to sense the air. I bend over my work. Without looking at my neighbor, I breathe. Do you? Her only reply is a faint snort. A short time later, she whispers, We had much better looking men in our village. The overseer's head swivels toward the sound. I and the other seamstress stitch furiously at our seams until her slit-eyed gaze slides away. I sneak another glance at the seamstress beside me. She bites off a thread and casts me a wink. Do you remember your village, I whisper. She gives me an almost imperceptible nod. I remember my name, too. It's Mariah. I think about this for a while. She could be lying. None of us is supposed to remember anything, except for our skills, of course. How could she sit here stitching her life away if she had any memories of before? I decide that she's lying. Well, do you think he's handsome? Mariah whispers, when the overseer is busy inspecting another seamstress's work. She's back to the shoemaker again. She wasn't here when he was flogged for the dogskin slippers. Now and then we are ordered to put down our work and file into the walled courtyard outside our sewing room. In the middle of the courtyard stands a wooden post, and it was there that the shoemaker was chained, shivering in an icy wind. We seamstresses were lined up to watch, joined by the other laborers, the hatters, the lace makers, the spinsters of gold and a straw, the candle makers, the glovers, the gem cutters, and so on. A row of uniformed guards faced us. The godmother, wearing a sable cape and muff, sat on a golden chair on a dais, raised above the frozen ground. She made no speech. 
She simply waved a languid hand, and a pig-snatted guard stepped forward, took one or two practice swings, and proceeded to whip the shoemaker bloody. The courtyard echoed with the sound of braided leather meeting flesh. It was all I could do to keep my feet. He was hanging in the chains by the time the pig was done. But he never cried out. Handsome is not a word I would use to describe the shoemaker. Mariah makes her impatience for an answer known in the abrupt way she ties off and snips a thread. Finally, I shrug. She rolls her eyes and opens her mouth to whisper something else, but in her enthusiasm she has lost vigilance. So, something to say? The overseer peers over Mariah's shoulder, her tongue flicking eagerly in and out of her mouth. A scaly hand descends on the girl's shoulders. Mariah flinches and her eyes widen. No, overseer, she whispers, all trace of daring gone. The overseer draws back her head and narrows her eyes. Saw. Possibly a chastisement is necessitated, yes. Mariah bites her lip. Her hands are trembling and her face has gone petticoat white. A seamstress's purpose is to stitch, the overseer says, pushing her face up to Mariah's. Stitch and stitch, not to converse. Not to speculate. Stitch. Understand? Mariah sits frozen. Seamstress has no history, the overseer continues. Nothing behind. Nothing before. Seamstress that speaks will have her tongue severed. Tears drop from Mariah's eyes, watering the silk she has gusted onto her lap. She nods and takes a trembling stitch. The overseer opens her mouth to continue her harangue. I poke my needle in a pincushion and turn to face the overseer. I asked her if she could see well enough. My voice seems to echo in the silent room. The row of seamstresses pause for a moment in their work, and then commence stitching again. But ears are pricked. The overseer jerks around to face me. Saw? I said that we haven't enough light to sew by. I point to the guttering candle at my elbow. We could do finer work if we had better light. The overseer blinks. She closes her mouth and straightens, gazing at me as if mesmerized. I hold my breath. So, she says at last, I see. To my relief, she folds her hands and glides away to resume her watchful duties. A time later, two horned, goat-footed guards bring in boxes of fresh waxen candles, which are lit and placed at her elbows. The other seamstresses cast me wondering glances. Mariah sits like a stone beside me and stitches. Are you all right, I whisper. She stares at her work and does not answer. For a time I stitch and think. My history is blank. Mariah remembers a village, handsome men, her name. I don't know what I would do if I had all that behind me and nothing before. The candles burn down and are replaced with new ones. A bone needle breaks, and I reach for another, threading it with an emerald-colored silk to match the gown I am hemming. An odd stillness interrupts my thoughts. Mariah has stopped working. She sits beside me on the bench, staring at her in moving hands. The overseer's back is turned, but when she looks around, she will see. Are you all right? I ask again. Mariah doesn't answer. Slowly she sets down her needle and pushes a pile of scarlet velvet off her lap. Her movements fluid with remembered grace. She gets to her feet. The overseer, distracted by another's stitches, does not see. Mariah turns and walks to the sewing room door. The seamstresses pause in their work, following her with their squinting eyes. 
This cessation of motion, the overseer notices. She snaps around. At the same moment, Mariah throws open the door and flings herself outside. A spate of activity follows. The shouting of guards, a scuffle, the sound of blows, Mariah's high-pitched screams, followed by stillness and silence. We seamstresses are on our feet, our faces to the door, our eyes straining to see. The overseer re-enters, smoothing her dress. There is no sound but the cessation of her footsteps. She looks up, seeing us looking. So. We bow our heads, resume our seats, and so. We are all wondering what will become of Mariah. Most of us imagine the flogging post. Some of us might even look forward to witnessing such a punishment, as it breaks up the monotony of our work. A time later, the guards come again. Between them walks Mariah, her eyes blank, moving awkwardly like a collection of sticks pulled by strings. The guards push her into place beside me on the bench. The overseer places a threaded needle into her hands and sets her to hemming an apron. The guards depart. Mariah stitches. I watch her out of the corners of my eyes. She stitches. The overseer replaces the needle and the cloth in her hands, and she continues to sew. Her stitches, I notice, are wide and sloppy. A thread of drool escapes from her mouth and stains the cloth, but she sews on, unnoticing. We have all thought of doing what Mariah has done, but no one in my memory has ever tried to escape. It is quite a novelty. I can see why the godmother has sent Mariah back again, even though she has been made useless. A scream jolts me out of my reverie. Beside me, Mariah shrieks again, falls backward off the bench and rolls to the floor, clawing at her stomach. The seamstresses jump to their feet, some craning over the table to see. The overseer races up. Guards are called for. Orders are hissed. And in the clear space on the floor, Mariah writhes and moans. She swallowed her needles, and now they are piercing her insides. I look on with the rest as two guards, their furry ears twitching in alarm, come in and drag her out, still screaming. She stares at me, blank-eyed as they carry her past. Her seat remains empty, and the extra work is passed on to the rest of us. I stitch. Despite the better light, the tears continue to flow from my eyes. The sound of footsteps and curt orders is heard outside. The door flies open and several guards rush in, their naked tails waving behind them. The overseer slithers up, hissing her displeasure. An inspection, she is told. We seamstresses are made to stand in rows before our tables, heads bowed, hands folded neatly before us. Just an inspection, the guards say again, as if trying to reassure us. For a moment there is silence. Then the godmother enters. I don't dare look at her but her presence is obvious in the way the room suddenly feels smaller and darker and taut with held breaths. The godmother stands in the doorway surveying us. Good girls, she says, even though some of those so-called girls are old enough to be grandmothers. The godmother sweeps into the room, trailed by the overseer and the nervous guards. She pauses to inspect a bit of embroidery, then proceeds down the row until she reaches me. I keep my gaze on the stone floor. The overseer says you speak for the others, seamstress, the godmother says. The sound of her voice makes me jerk in surprise. My body tingles as if I've been struck by lightning. But I suppose she's right. I do speak for the others. I manage a nod. Well then, the godmother says, is there anything you want or need? Ah, 
They don't want a repeat of Mariah's messy death. I do assume she died, eventually, one way or another. But I will not ask the godmother for anything. We don't eat or sleep or menstruate or relieve ourselves. What could she give us that she hasn't already taken away? I can sense the other seamstress's anticipation, their unspoken requests. Nothing, I say, and risk an upward glance. The godmother regards me for an instant, with eyes of blue ice. Her expression says that she is wondering if my refusal to ask her for anything is a veiled rebellion. Her dress is the same frozen color as her eyes. I remember sewing the tiny crystals onto the overskirt. Her delicate nose wrinkles slightly, and she looks away, dismissing my petty resistance, already thinking about something else. I wonder if she looks the same way at the beautiful princesses-to-be, when they are covered with smuts and have dirty fingernails and calluses, and hair matted with dirt and grease. The godmother's attention fixes on me again. I keep still, the hunted rabbit. She looks me up and down. Your feet are sufficiently small. The overseer reports that the shoemaker has requested you as a model for his latest task. You are excused your duties until he has finished with you. I am not expected to speak, and it is just as well that I don't have to, for my voice might betray my excitement. If he has asked for me, then he must understand what I have been trying to tell him with my furtive nods and suggestive looks. The godmother stares at me, waiting. I bob a curtsy, and she glides regally from the room. The walls step back and take a deep breath after she is gone. The other seamstresses cast me jealous looks as they resume their seats. The overseer ushers me to the door. Sah! You shall spend a short time with the shoemaker. Serve as his model, and so serve your mistress. She tells me how to reach the shoemaker's room. I step out the sewing room door. The last time I was outside to witness his punishment, the air was icy as it is now. But the sky is dark this time, and swirling with snowflakes. I cross the courtyard without looking at the flogging post and enter the castle. I follow the overseer's directions, making a left turn here, following that corridor to its end, climbing up this staircase, until I come to the shoemaker's door. As instructed, I knock and enter. He looks up from his workbench and carefully sits down his tools. Hurry, we don't have much time. Without speaking, I go to him, untying my apron. His hands are rough with haste, pulling my cotton shift over my head. He takes off his shirt and spreads it on the stone floor, and we lie down together. It is not love that we make, but we ease each other, and the release is something a seamstress might savor as she sits, crook-backed and bleary-eyed, stitching ball gowns for willowy maidens. We turn and turn in each other's arms, skin on skin, and make not a sound. A time later we were entwined, catching our breaths. From the way I knew how to touch him, I gather I had other lovers while I lived in the world. A husband, maybe, or a handsome village lad. My body remembers the act of love the same way my fingers remember how to stitch. I think about Mariah and her questions. With my calloused fingertips, I trace the scars that cross his back like knotted ropes. Do you remember anything from before, I ask? He rolls onto his side and looks at me, his eyes dark. No, he rests his hand on the swell of my hip and gives a wry smile. Just the now. I've decided to forget everything before this very moment. And will you forget this moment when it is past? He gives the half-smile again. I don't know. Maybe. I do understand. 
His scars feel rough and unhealed beneath my fingertips. I think we should try to get away. He sits up abruptly and jerks the shirt from beneath us. The stone floor is freezing against my bare skin. God, he says, teeth suddenly chattering. She'd kill us if she caught us. I'd better get started on the slipper pattern before it's too late. He climbs to his feet, pulling on his trousers, tucking in his shirt, looking around for his tools. I lean my head against my hand and watch him. But what if she didn't catch us? He pauses, looking down at me. I don't know. He sits down at his workbench, hands clenched on his knees. Maybe you're right. Maybe we should. I sit up and braid my hair, slip into my shift and retie my apron. When I go to the door, he watches, his face full of doubt. I put my hand on the latch. I am going. That decides him. He gets to his feet and joins me. We make our way through the castle, which sleeps as if enchanted, down the stairs, through the corridors, and out into the courtyard. The wind howls, blowing gusts of snow before it. The gateway yawns open and empty, the guards huddled inside over their watchroom fires. We pause and cast one last look back at the castle, then turn to face the gate. What do you think it'll be like, he asks. I don't know. It could be empty darkness. It could be wildflower meadows and villages and fat harvests. It could be pursued by ravening hounds and flame-eyed hunters. No matter. I will go, whatever lies ahead. What do I have to stay for? Stitch, stitch, stitch until I'm blind? Bone needles and silken threads? Better to go on, to find what lies beyond the gate. Holding hands like those children lost in the woods, we step over the threshold. And that was our story. What are they going to do now? Probably not Disneyland. A bit of upcoming news for those of you who will listen to this within uh, 48 hours of it coming out. On Friday night, August 26th, Escape Pod is going to get two shout-outs on the radio in the New York area. First, at 11.30 p.m., WUSB on Long Island will be airing Destinies, the voice of science fiction. Destinies is the country's longest-running science fiction radio show, and Chris DePhilippis is going to be reviewing Escape Pod in his The Flipside segment. Then, at 5 a.m. on WBAI, our very own narrator, Deborah Green, will be on the Hour of the Wolf show with Jim Freund. She's going to be reading from her novel Soulbound, so if you love Deb's voice, this is your chance to hear more of it. Both radio stations offer streaming from their websites, and WBAI has archived streaming of recent shows, so if you're not in New York, you'll still be able to catch these. Go to our website at escapepod.info for links. If you'd like to hear your own voice on Escape Pod, consider leaving us a book review. We're looking for reviews, rants, or raves on books about one to two minutes long. You can record it as an MP3 file and send it to editor at extraneous.org, or call our voicemail line at 206-666-EPOD. We also welcome comments on our voice line, or criticisms, or stock tips, or lost pizza delivery guys calling for directions. Just because it's not productive doesn't mean you can't call. If you enjoy this week's Escape Pod, we invite you to spread the word about it. We also invite you to support us by clicking on the PayPal link at escapepod.info. We pay for rights on all the stories we podcast, so when you donate to us, you're really thanking the authors. And as we started doing lately, I'd like to give a special thanks to one of our donors. This time it's Rick, 
I don't know his location, and I don't want to give out last names without permission, but Rick knows who he is. He's one of only two three-time donors to Escape Pod. He caught my eye when he sent us a few bucks at the end of June and said, I'll donate more when I can. Then, the very next day, he donated $30 with a Yay Payday comment. He's donated since then as well, and all he's asked is, make sure the writers are fed. Okay, we'll do our best. And if you're one of our donors and you ever run into me at a con, let me know. I'll make sure you get a beer. We distribute Escape Pod on a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Go forth and multiply this file. But do not add, subtract, or divide from it, as all other rights are reserved to our authors. Our music is, as always, by permission of Daikaiju. I just saw on their site that they have new t-shirts. They're black. They say Daikaiju. It's the most beautiful thing. Check them out at daikaiju.org. Thanks for listening, and... Oh, if you do that news podcast, once in a while, mention the planes that stay in the air. Thanks. And have fun. <laughs>